you can create these falsified forms of media pretty quickly using free uh, text to image generators online. So when you're talking about popular types of media that tend to be manipulated, a lot of the time you see people recontextualizing things that might be true, kind of rather than having something that's black or white, you actually have this gray area with muddled truth, which makes it a little more difficult. Welcome to Newhouse Impact, a collaboration between the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications and WAER. I'm Kevin Kloss, and on this episode, we're diving into the vast world of media manipulation. I'm joined for this conversation by research professor Jason Davis and graduate student Phoebe Smith. They both lend some valuable insight into the idea of media manipulation how it's being created, and what tools are available to detect it. Jason and Phoebe, thanks so much for coming by today. I really appreciate your time. Super uh, to be here. We're excited to, to talk about the work we've been doing. So speaking of the work, I want to give you what I believe the work to be and then maybe correct me a little bit, Give add a little insight in terms of uh, what it is that you guys actually do. According to my understanding, what you guys really do is create and test AI algorithms that can identify what we call manipulated media. Is that a fair assessment of what you guys are working on? Yeah, I think that's actually a pretty concise version of what we do. And when we say manipulated media, we're not talking about Photoshop. We're not talking about edits to make something appear better. We're talking about fake news, misinformation, disinformation. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, I think that's one of the important lines we have to draw um, because just because something has been manipulated doesn't make it malicious. Think about a cat meme. There's nothing harmful about a cat meme, but technically it's fake news, right? It's not real. Uh, so I think that's the important distinction we, we make in our work is we really are trying to identify the things that have uh, sort of a threat element to them or a malicious element to them versus just being stuff that has been manipulated by people with Photoshop, let's say. And so I'm curious for, for each of you, how did you, how did you come to get into into this line of work? Maybe, Jason, for you, how did you decide this was something you wanted to participate in? And then, Phoebe, I'm interested to know how you became a part of the team. Jason, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Um, yeah, so I came about it. I'm a bit of a technical nomad, so I'm a Ph.D. chemist by training. Um, and then I spent about 10 years in industry, in pharma, doing drug discovery work in oncology and Alzheimer's and uh, other areas. I moved over to General Electric Company where I was at their global research center and there I got to work on a lot of different technologies, a really cool hub area. And one of the spaces that uh, I got exposed to was the idea of computer-assisted diagnostics. So things like CT scans. A doctor has to look at those CT scans and sort of a thousand CT slices or images and really make some important decisions about what to do. And how many people are in a line. So efficiency matters there, right? So one of the tools that we uh, developed there was a computer-assisted diagnostic. That uh, It's a digital tool that would go in and look at those images and help a physician understand what to look at quickly and first, like a second opinion almost, uh, but a digital one. So I found uh, that connected very strongly with the current situation we're in when it comes to mis- and disinformation. Really what we're looking at is a problem where humans no longer have the capability necessarily to be able to detect that kind of, of, of event themselves. We need help, right? Digital capabilities have grown on the side of creating mis- and disinformation. We need some digital tools uh, to help us as humans manage that challenge. And so that was something where it was a really hard problem, a messy problem, but an important one. And rather than wringing our hands and saying, oh, this is terrible, uh, I wanted to dive in and, and do something about it. 
And then Phoebe, for you, how did you get involved with this? So my background is actually in public relations. I majored in public relations in my undergrad here at Syracuse at the Newhouse School. And a lot of the time during my undergrad, I had experiences at various internships, and I tended to be at the intersection of emerging technology and then public relations or marketing work. So something that's really important to me is kind of making sure that these technologies are accessible. And some examples, uh, I worked at Crane Currency. So for example, there, there's a lot of issues where people are making manipulated bills. Um, dollar bills, right? So you have that strip in your $100 bill that like a bill validator can read and ensure that it's valid. And I think a lot of the times I like to liken the situation with manipulated media to bill validation because these strategies of detection are always updating along with the tools kind of like the uh, strip in that bill in order to validate it. And so since I come from that public relations background, I'm actually pretty interested in making sure that there's transparency in the digital tools to actually build that trust because I feel like all Oftentimes when you're talking about working in part of a larger organization that's addressing uh, these broader problems, you there it's not fair um, to say that there's the distrust is unwarranted. I feel like when you're talking about manipulated media, whether it be the government or journalists or private organizations or individual people, kind of throughout history, everyone's played a role uh, in contributing to the manipulated or media landscape or the climate of distrust, if you will. And so I'm actually interested to... Um, I think human detection rates for different, it depends on the different types of media that you're looking at, but it can vary from 52% to 80% on some tasks. So some tasks are easier for humans than others. Um, so I'm just think it's really important that people are aware how to evaluate these digital tools. Because when we talked about creating them, we actually, our team doesn't create them, we actually evaluate them to see if they work and they do what they claim to do. So you're not making something like a fancy magic eight ball. And I feel like building that genuine public trust through building transparent tools is something that I advocate for because I feel like that's really the only way you can address a manipulated media climate and that climate of distrust if you want to use those digital tools. So staying with those digital tools for for just a moment now, are people even even aware that a, those digital tools exist for them to be able to to spot this manipulated media and do they know how to utilize them? So that's what's really interesting. Actually preparing for this podcast, I was doing additional research and there's a lot of tools out there. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact, I think it's called like Botto Check or something like that from researchers in Illinois. But you can even type in um, a username and it will give you a score of how likely that username uh, is associated with a bot account or things like that. Uh, however, these the way that these algorithms are trained can either be through supervised learning, unsupervised learning. Uh, th- there's different methods methods that you can approach and you don't always have that transparency in showing, oh, here's we, we saw this feature uh, that made us think that this was fake. A lot of the time, the, what, the free detectors that exist online don't really do that for you. And that's something that our project is trying to do is basically say like, OK, when we're detecting manipulated media, like here's the exact feature that we caught and we think this is why um, it's manipulated and things like that. Now, when we talk about a phrase you just used, which I'm sure is very easy for both of you to understand, when we talk about supervised learning, unsupervised what are we what's the differentiation between the two of those Supervised and unsupervised learning are pretty important. Um, Supervised learning is basically when researchers are able to give AI labels. So let's say I wanted to train an AI to classify um, plates of food, and I would tell it to look for things like utensils or plates. Um, Whereas with unsupervised learning, you basically don't label any of those features. And it's really important because in either scenario, when you're talking about dealing with AI, there's something called the black box problem. And AI uh, revolves around a lot of the time based on its probability of detection and using that as 
a uh, measure of success as compared to, okay, we're actually, this is 100% certain we know that this is fake. So it's pretty important to number one, if you're using some type of detector to recognize, okay, well, like, how was this built? Was it unsupervised learning? Was it supervised learning? Did people pick out, like, for example, right, individual researchers could say, this is fake. We want to look for that. Like, this fact is fake um, versus, oh, we can tell when you're looking at synthetic images, like that might be more unsupervised because like the AI can detect things at a network level that a human eye couldn't. So, Jason, I saw a recent quote by you, which I thought was very telling sort of of the space that you guys are in right now, which was, while the challenges associated with fake news and misinformation may not be new, the speed, scale and global impact created by digital media channels certainly is. Unpack that a little bit for me, because I definitely think there's a rising concern here. But from your perspective, what do you mean when you un- when you say that? Yeah. So, so again, the concept of, of of lying or fake news or misrepresenting somebody or discredit- discrediting another entity that's been going on for a long time, mm-hmm. from a stump speech with 50 villagers around them, right? Somebody ginning up the audience. All of that has the problem, you know, or the I think the difference right now is that that scale was those 50 people and maybe who they went and told over the next couple of days, over the next couple of weeks. Um, the impact and the ripple effect was uh, minimal or containable, let's say. Um, right now, that ripple effect happens in seconds, microseconds, and it goes to millions. Um, so the ability to have something that is false actually propagate uh, through social media platforms particularly um, is an incredibly different speed, pace, and scale. And it's magnified by um, sort of these scalable influencers uh, who have, let's say, large bodies of uh, sort of users who they have digital trust already built with. And so they can say things to that large body of uh, sort of loyal followers that maybe is not necessarily referenced. They may not be bona fide to actually speak to that topic. All of those things seem to be less relevant that you have credentials to actually (laughs) talk about something. Um, And yet you still get impact where those um, sort of large numbers of users then can go out and do things based on some of these calls to action, let's say. And when we are looking at these instances of manipulated media, are there certain types of media that are being manipulated more often or that maybe are just more susceptible to this? Absolutely. And it's one of the things that I'm uh, really passionate about, especially in the sort of STEM-related fields. So things that are technically complex are a great target for misinformation. And we saw that during the COVID uh, pandemic, right? So healthcare information, vaccination information, right? Very complex information. And if the story isn't told in a way that is approachable and accessible by the population, it creates a scary moment that that is exactly the kind of opening that a misinformation or disinformation campaign will be right on top of. And it propagates much faster because they don't have to go through any checks or balances. They don't have to actually get um, sort of the right truth out there that has been, again, validated. They can say whatever they want and they can be first to fill a vacuum of information. And that is a moment that we have to get ahead of. Now, in terms of media being manipulated and how long that might take to, for, for someone to go about that and then how long it takes to develop the tools, I assume that the tools are always uh, playing catch-up, so to speak. They're always a little bit behind. Talk a little bit, if you can, Phoebe. I know I, I've heard you talk about how long it takes to sort of develop something that could be conceived as manipulated media versus the tool. How long does it take for someone to create something that you guys would classify as manipulated media? 
It actually is pretty quick. You can create these falsified forms of media pretty quickly using free uh, text-to-image generators online. So when you're talking about popular types of media that tend to be manipulated, a lot of the time you see people recontextualizing things that might be true, kind of rather than having something that's black or white, you actually have this gray area with muddled truths, which makes it a little more difficult. And as Dr. Davis was saying earlier, synthetic content isn't inherently manipulated, but right, that's something that the anal- a feature that the analytics might look for, right, in a story of... Um, all the images are synthetic. Uh, and so, right, there's popular forms of graphic design uh, applications like Canva. I know you can even go on Canva and have a text image generator create nuclear missiles exploding and things like that in a matter of seconds. It takes like a minute. Uh, and so there's some platforms that try to have some regulation around it. So they're like, oh, you can't type in missile strike, but you can kind of be like bridge exploding with with large metal pole and it looks the same. Uh, so you can you can go on Online, a lot of the time, the, these services will ask you to use tokens. So you'll have like five free tokens, then you have to create an account or pay a dollar uh, afterwards to work on uh, generating more content, things like that. So when it comes to individual users, there's definitely access. But I think the things that people are more concerned about are definitely being generated at an organizational level, if that makes sense. That's actually exactly the next thing I was going to ask you was when identifying who is doing this, who is committing this act of manipulating the media, is it individuals or is it organizations, groups of people who are working together for for whatever reason? I definitely, well, you can look across all the literature and there's definitely a lot that shows uh, different instances, but I do think that more often than not, it tends to be larger organizations. And it kind of goes back to the same issues that I have when we're talking about climate change. A lot of the time, the individual public will get blamed for like, you need to save your straws. And it's like, that's great. We should be saving plastic in our straws. But at the end of the day, like your average Joe isn't the one that's like, buying the mansions and polluting all the, you know, spending all, using all the water uh, on their personal lawn and things like that. Um, So I feel like when it comes to the climate of manipulated media, it's similar. So people might be able to spread or perpetuate things that these larger organizations are creating. And that's kind of what I think is important about these digital tools, too, so that the publics don't get the um, brunt of the burden or the blame when it comes to a manipulated media environment. And, and if I could just mm-hmm. sort of add on, so, you know, the way that, let's say, the Department of Defense thinks about this as threat levels, right? So, and uh, there's sophisticated, high-level uh, sort of state-level threats. So, let's say we, you know, we know who those government actors are typically, and there's, you know, maybe there's five of them. But they can do high-level work. They have sort of all the technical capabilities to do things that we would say like deep fake level technology, right? So um, then we come down to the level that is really more, um, uh, let's say, politically motivated or uh, fraudulent, let's say, criminal organization level, right? So the Nigerian print scam, phishing, that kind of starts to fall into that that area. And they are really, uh, they don't have to go all the way to like super sophisticated technology. A cheap fake will actually get you a long way with most of the population, unfortunately, right? And particularly when they know who their target is, and that is really important. So getting an understanding of this group is already susceptible to this kind of messaging. I tell you what you want to hear, even though it's completely fake, and you will believe it. And there's really very little we on digital tool developments I can do about that, um, except awareness, right? So um, there's that high level, you know, again, state entity kind of sophisticated attacks that happen regularly around the world. Then there's that sort of 
criminal enterprise level or um, let's say even a group of people with a particular agenda that they want to push. Um, and it could be like that sort of maybe a little bit of zealotry or really strongly held beliefs that drive them to do something uh, that is not really to, uh, sort of appropriate. Um, and then uh, there's sort of, again, the, the people who are just maybe doing something because they're as a lone wolf almost level. Um, and, and they're probably on the lowest end of the threat uh, scale. But um, the tools are accessible and it is becoming more accessible. So uh, anybody can do this if they decide they have a reason to do it. I consider myself a fairly tech-savvy guy, and at times I feel some of this goes directly over <laughs> my head. So can we try to unpack this a little bit? Do you have an example of a tool that people could be using to help spot some of this manipulated media and how someone would go about using that? Well, so some of them exist already. And and here's the, the other side. The reality is that not enough of them exist. Mm -hmm. And not enough of them exist in a way that is approachable by the public. So they are already embedded, let's say, in platforms like Twitter, that blue checkmark, which is currently a source of hot debate right now, right, between Elon Musk and others. Um, those are those are our potential, the, the first tools that have been rolled out by the platforms and social media space to try and help deal with this problem. So those already are partially available, but oftentimes they are in that black box category. I don't know how they work. I don't know who gets the blue check mark. I don't know what the criteria you're identifying them on. Um, and so uh, there have been other versions which are more on the fact checking side, like uh, Bell the Cat is a, a great example uh, that's out there. And these are sort of groups of almost volunteer you know, sort of people who recognize this problem is real and they go and do due diligence on in different you know, disinformation campaigns and sort of hunt them out, seek them out and display, hey, this is not real and here's why. Uh, the European Union right now has also been working on some collaborative efforts to create um, frameworks that allow this kind of regulation level um, tool development, um, but that's still early doors. and. They are not the fastest movers in terms of governments getting involved. Sometimes doesn't mean speed. Um, and uh, that's kind of where we're in that in-between space. So right now, um, there are some tools, but I don't know that there are tools that are, let's say, uh, been sanctioned or blessed. It's the Wild West, right? So user, user beware is probably the best, the best medicine right now. So it's fair to say we're very much in the early stages of this then? Early stages and deep catch-up stages, let's say, right? So these tools, so just recently, the last six months, the evolution in uh, something we call synthetic media, and that's computer-generated images, computer-generated text, um, has exploded. They are have gone step change, step change, step change over the last two or three years. So that's where you get to this level where barely coin flip that humans can actually understand or, or detect. We don't have the optics. We don't have the sensors. Our eyes can't do it anymore. The, the, the computer-generated content is too good. So that is probably one of the first places that we think tools are almost ready to, to sort of be launched um, for that kind of detection. Uh, and I, we, they're much needed in that space. Having evaluated, you know, these these algorithms and the and these tools, is there a blind spot that either of you guys see where you go, we really need to get better here based on the testing and the evaluating that you guys have done? I feel like there's definitely a lot of them. I mean, instantly, I want to say 
race and gender, like you want to, there's a lot of issues when it comes to perpetuating different biases in AI, and you definitely don't want to be a part of that. And I think that's what's also important to building public trust. I definitely think that's something that is would be an ongoing process, and I think should be incorporated more in the evaluation process, for example. Um, But kind of because of the nature of that Dr. Davis is describing, there seems to be this catch-up stage. And the analytics themselves are still on a uh, very, very, very early basic learning stages, learning curve. So there's, it's like right now they're still determining between is, there, is this image cropped? And very, very, very basic mechanics. So they don't even have really the ability to kind of get into that area, that space yet. But I definitely feel like as the future progresses, uh, addressing that those issues are really important. And I also do think um, ensuring that there's transparency in design because of the black box issue. Because, again, you don't want to be part of perpetuating the problem. And you have to have an awareness of how different parties could have a hand in contributing to public trust. So I do feel like uh, if you want to make use of these tools, transparency and also giving people the ability um, to evaluate themselves is helpful. I think uh, besides that, when you're talking about gaps, I think it's dependent on the task. I honestly think it's more so just the capability, bridging the gap as we discussed between the generators and the detectors and just making sure that there's rigorous evaluation data uh, that shows and captures that analytics can successfully do these tasks. So, because you can always show, oh, um, it's successful in this case with this one, this one evaluation set, but you could run another evaluation and might say something different. So ensuring that there's standards kind of for success as Dr. Davis was talking about too, that's important. Yeah, and and, uh, the way sort of we think about it on our research program is three layers. So detection is the first layer, attribution is the next layer, and then characterization is the most complex layer. So detection is, is it fake? Is it not? Is it been manipulated? Is it not? Not why, not what, not how, not what are they trying to do, any of that stuff, right? Uh, Attribution is, is it coming from who it says it's coming from? Is this pretending to be from the New York Times, but really it's a misinformation campaign that's trying to use their credibility to sort of get access to their audience? Or attribution can also mean, hey, what kind of of, of manipulation tool was used to generate this data? Because then we can start to walk backwards in a forensic fashion and see, hey, who are the general actors who use this kind of software and have this kind of campaign tactic that they use a lot, right? Profiles that people like the Department of Defense keep on bad actors around the world. And so if you can start to do that attribution uh, uh, component, you can start to maybe backtrace into who is actually launching this disinformation campaign and how can we stop them. And then characterization is probably the most challenging piece for tools because it really does involve that semantic reasoning. What is the intent behind this? Is this malicious? Is this, that's a gray area for humans, right? That's hard for us even to, to you know, or do you just have a strong opinion one way or, or another way? And so, um, but that is really the level, the context where you start to say, okay, what's the threat on this? You know, this is fake. It's been misattributed as a source that it's not really from. But again, is it a cat meme or is it somebody trying to create a call to action for political unrest? Those are two different ends of the spectrum, right? But the, the problem, the underlying problem is, is that characterization problem. And how do we use natural language to try and understand and separate those two worlds? Um, that's a bit of a messy space. But detect- detection, we're pretty good at. Attribution, we're getting better at. Characterization, is, is we're still crawling uh, in this AI world. I th- 
I think it can also be challenging, too, because a lot of the time when you're detecting or, uh, number one, I feel like a lot of programs don't even get to the misattribution or characterization stage. It's mainly a detection, but you can only focus on a specific topic or a specific type of technique or modality, and then this program actually tries to roll that all together. So that's, uh, like, adds to the challenges as well. Um, but th there would also be a gap in just a general understanding of consistency that doesn't seem to be present in literature. And then, Phoebe, last question I wanted to ask today. As someone who comes from a PR background and is maybe looking at some of this work through that lens, what do we need to do to raise the public awareness of the need for more of these kinds of programs that can help detect? I honestly think incorporating evaluation into digital literacy might be helpful because you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. You're giving people the ability to assess the like there's going to be a myriad of tools, I think, available to people to uh, navigate the landscape quite similarly to how um, there's left and right leaning news organizations. So how do you kind of attack that and find the meat and uh, meat of what you need? So I feel like incorporating evaluation, uh, how incorporating, evaluating digital tools into uh, media literacy programs. And there's a lot that are actually now being federally mandated across the country. So I think having an understanding of these tools could inspire people, you know, to want to get involved themselves or um, you're, you're kind of inherently understanding it. So like I said, it, it kills two birds with one stone it's because you get informed about the environment and why, you know, these tools are being created. Then you also understand how to use them and potentially make them better or more accurate yourself in the future. So Phoebe Smith, Dr. Jason Davis, thanks so much for both of you coming over here and helping me and everyone else to better understand what it is you guys are working on. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Newhouse Impact, a collaboration between WAER and the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. Our associate producer is Emma Hudson. And a special thanks to Dr. Regina Luttrell, Associate Dean of Research and Creative Activity. Find more from the department at newhouse.syr.edu research. You can find more about this podcast at waer.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm Kevin Kloss. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.